Hi, this is Kale Clark, and this is The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio mobile apps. Our brand new series on St. Paul's letter to the Romans, the most important letter that's ever been penned. And we're going to pick it up now. If you want to open up your Bible or your Bible app, if you're going digital, to Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. This is so key, these two verses to the entire letter. Here's what St. Paul writes. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Now, as one scholar, Harold Attridge says, This is essentially the thesis statement of St. Paul's letter to the Romans, these two verses. This is, in effect, the GPS. He's setting the coordinates for where we are going to go in this letter. I don't know if you remember life without GPS and map apps on your phone. Uh, It wasn't pretty. Very often driving around aimlessly, getting lost. Oh, I know where I'm going. Uh, Getting in fights with whoever's sitting in the shotgun seat passenger-wise. You pull out maybe a paper map, but those are hard to read at times as well. So Google Maps, Apple Maps, all of these applications were an absolute godsend. They make things so much easier. And it'll be easier for us to read Romans if we can keep these two verses in mind all the time as we're going through it, because this really does chart the course for us. Now, one of the things that he says right in verse 16 is, I am not ashamed of the gospel. This is very, very important because in the gospel itself, of course, and we can look at, for example, Mark chapter 8, verse 38, the words of Jesus, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. And by the way, every generation is an adulterous and sinful generation. We're going to see the utter sinfulness of mankind uh, in this chapter in just a moment. But Jesus says, whoever is ashamed of me, And of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the son of man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. Now, this is the last thing we want. Very often we are tempted to cower in fear, especially in the face of a culture that's very hostile, very inimical towards the gospel. To many people in modern civilizations, Christianity is so passe, maybe even barbaric and and, and old-fashioned, and it's not relevant to the modern world. Nothing can be further from the truth. God's truth is true, and it is eternal. It's always valid. It's always relevant. And our challenge is really to show this uh, through the example of our lives and how we explain and defend the gospel, that it really does touch the human heart and human problems, which we all have. But the worst possible faith that we could have is that Jesus is ashamed of us. At the second coming, when he returns, another thing he said in the gospel is this. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Will he find faith? That's a really good question, and and may that not be true of you or I. You know, faith is a gift. There's no question that it's an initial gift of God, and we have to partner with him. This is one of the theological virtues in the Catechism. In paragraph 1814, it says, Faith is the theological virtue by which we believe in God and believe all that he has said and revealed to us, and that Holy Church proposes for our belief, because he is truth itself. 
By faith, man, and of course woman as well, freely commits his entire self to God. For this reason, the believer seeks to know and do God's will. The righteous shall live by faith. And this is important because this idea of the righteous shall live by faith, which the Catechism picks up on, are really the very words of St. Paul. Right here in verse 17, when he writes, As it is written, the one who is righteous by faith will live. So Paul himself was not ashamed to be associated with Jesus Christ. And even in his time, people had their doubts about the faith. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we did this in our series, Saints and Sin City on 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22, 23, and 24, Paul writes, For Jews demand signs. And by that, he means miracles. In John's gospel, the miracles of Jesus are called signs. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. And of course, Christ is wisdom incarnate. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. Or in one translation, it is foolishness to the Greeks. So this idea of a crucified Man, why should I follow this guy? This is what the ancient Romans would have been thinking. This is the most powerless person on the face of the earth. And that's why it's so important. The Roman centurion who, in Mark's gospel, when he sees how Jesus dies, he says, truly, this man was the son of God, not Caesar. This is one of the title titles of the great Caesars, the Roman emperor's son of God. No, no, no. It's not Caesar Augustus. It is Jesus the Lord. And, and of course, uh, to a lot of uh, Jewish believers, they, they couldn't conceive that this would happen to the Messiah, that the Messiah would allow himself uh, to be killed in this ignominious manner. But nevertheless, as Paul says, to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, because the church was made up of Jewish believers and Gentile believers, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For those who have faith, for those who have the eyes of faith to see what's really going on on the cross. So Paul is not ashamed about this, and he wants the whole world to know about it. So one of the things that he says here in this first little bit here, in, in verse 16, he says, It's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, for the Jew first and then the Greek. This is really important as well. Now God, when he was sort of enacting his fatherly plan, his providentially ordained plan, the oikonomia, the, the divine economy of salvation, he could have done it in so many different ways. He could have picked any group of people on the face of the earth to begin to reveal himself in and through them, even becoming one of them. But ultimately, the plan was always for all people all over the world to be able to come into his worldwide family, the Catholic Church. And this started with Father Abraham, of course. And even God told Abraham, you will be the father of a multitude of many nations. But Abraham, of course, was the father of faith for the Jewish people. And so God chose, he sovereignly chose the Jews to reveal himself to the world. And he eventually became incarnate as Jesus of Nazareth, in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, the son of the Jewish maiden Miriam. And so he is very, very entwined in the middle of this. And this was always God's plan to reveal things first to the Jews and then through them to the rest of the world. And the same is true in which this is the way that Paul preaches the gospel. Every time he goes into a town, he goes, first of all, to the synagogue and he preaches to them about Jesus as the Messiah. Some people believe, some people don't. Sometimes he gets treated shamefully, sometimes he doesn't. 
And then he moves on to the Gentiles as well. This is what he does in every single town that he goes to. But it's really, really important to know that there are Gentile believers in this Roman church. And again, because of the expulsion of the Jews from Rome, we talked about that at the beginning of the series. Many of them, the Jewish believers, have been gone for a long time, and now they're back. And some of the Gentile Christians might have been tempted to think, we don't need them. We don't need uh, the legacy of the old covenant. We don't need this now. We've got Jesus Christ. We've got the new covenant. We can just simply move along. But Paul will say, and we'll see this later in the letter, and this is, again, why these two verses are such a touchstone, such a GPS for the whole letter to the Romans, that do not, he says, don't be haughty, don't be arrogant, because God has grafted you in like a branch from another tree onto this original tree that he planted, the people of God. So please don't be haughty and arrogant. They do have dibs, if you will, to, to put it colloquially, that the blessings that God gave to them, he's extending to the rest of the world. But you, you need to understand this. And uh, they're, par- they're always part of God's plan, the people of Israel, and they always will be. So again, we'll, we'll talk more about this as we go along in the letter. But we have to understand here that Paul is setting things up for what he's going to talk about next. And it's the good news of the gospel. And the reason why he's not ashamed of it is because the world needs it so badly. We're going to see here in this next little section just the utter sinfulness of sin. And just as he talks about the Jews and the Gentiles here in 16 and 17, he's going to expand upon this quite a bit. He's going to expand upon the pagan world and how lost they are without God. But not just them. Jews as well cannot rely on the fact that they've been given the commandments, they've been given the law, they've been given the promises. The Messiah is their own according to the flesh. But if they themselves are not obedient to the gospel, they can be lost as well. So let's see what Paul says next. Okay, let's look at the next section here in Romans. You're listening to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. I'm your host, Cale Clark. Let's look at Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 23. Now, if this were a symphony, the the music would get kind of dark at this point and foreboding because... Paul is going to really diagnose the problem that the world has. And and this is going to make the the solution of the gospel make so much more sense to us and be so much more hopeful for us. So before these notes of hope can be sounded here, we do need to understand the depths of depravity into which human beings have sank. So he's going to talk about idolatry, the problem of idolatry, how religion has become corrupt, and how life itself, people have misused life. All right, let's look at uh, chapter 1, verses 18 to 23. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of men who by their wickedness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Ever since the creation of the world, his invisible nature, namely his eternal power and deity, has been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man or birds or animals or reptiles. Okay, in verse 18 here, 
St. Paul says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of men who by their wickedness suppress the truth. This idea of the wrath of God being revealed from heaven. We have to remember here that Paul is essentially using an anthropomorphism. What does that mean? It means that he's ascribing a human emotion to God so that we might better understand it. God does not get angry in the sense that you might fly off the handle at somebody who runs into your car in a traffic jam or something like that, or you, you might get mad at somebody. That is not the kind of anger that we're talking about here. That is not the kind of wrath that we're talking about. This is a human emotion. Now, there, there can certainly be righteous anger. There's no question. But we, we, don't, we don't want to imagine God in heaven just you know, saying, I cannot believe these humans. He knows very well what, what's happening. However, there, there is still a righteous anger from a human perspective. Now, we saw Jesus getting angry, of course, in the gospel. Lots of things angered him. Uh, hypocrisy when it comes to religion. Uh, failure to care for those who needed care, widows and orphans. That just drove him up the wall. What happened at the action in the temple? The, he overturns the tables of the money changers who are ripping people off, who are trying to uh, buy these animals to make their sacrifices. There are animals wandering around in the courts of the Gentiles, uh, leaving their droppings behind. People are trying to stand and pray. He is just livid about this, Jesus is. And he makes a whip out of cords. He drives them out. And he says, do not make my father's house a marketplace. So we see this in John chapter 2. But we also understand that if Jesus is angry, he has a right to be because he is perfect God and perfect man. He is not guilty of any sin. If he's angry, it's not a sinful anger. It's a righteous anger through and through. And so he, he's got reason to be upset. So certainly in terms of the incarnation, absolutely does God experience emotions. He does. He experienced the whole gamut. The incarnation is real. I think when it comes to the incarnation, the, the interplay between the hypostatic union of the divine person of Jesus Christ and his human nature, I think if anything, we tend to downplay the human uh, nature of Jesus. But he certainly had that. But that's not what St. Paul is talking about when he's talking about the wrath of God. But he's trying to get our attention because of the fact that God does need to deal with the sin problem of the world. In his justice, he has to. And he wants to uh, make us aware of how serious these things really are. And, and what's most serious about this, I think in verse 18, is that people, not only are they ungodly and are they, are they wicked, but they suppress the truth by their wickedness. They, they, they want to kind of push it down. They, they know, even if they are irreligious, even if they are complete pagans, they somehow know that they are responsible for their actions. They want to suppress the truth. And what they want to do, essentially, is drown out the voice of Almighty God. This is why the conscience, uh, Cardinal Newman uh, spoke of the conscience of the human person. The word conscience means with knowledge. Con means with science, knowledge, scientia. So we have with knowledge. But for a lot of people, when they are they're saying, I'm, I'm just going according to my conscience, they're not acting with knowledge because our conscience needs to be formed. It needs to be educated in the truth. But nonetheless, the conscience that each human person has, as Carl Newman says, the conscience is the aboriginal vicar 
of Christ. That is such a great term. Of course, the Pope is the vicar of Christ on earth. Well, what if you're not Catholic? What if you uh, don't know anything about the Pope and his teachings? You still have the aboriginal vicar of Christ, which is your conscience, the message from eternity speaking to you, uh, do this, don't do that. Uh, what we have done, what we have left undone. I think uh, of the the tableau, the, the desolate ta tableau of deeds left undone. Uh, that may be even more damning in the end, the good that we have left undone than, than the evil things that we have chosen to do. But the bottom line is that nobody has an excuse. People try to suppress. They don't want to deal with it. But we see here in the very next verse, in verse 19, God says through St. Paul here, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Verse 20, ever since the creation of the world, his invisible nature, namely his eternal power and deity, has been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. What is Paul talking about really here? It's creation theology. It's natural theology. It's natural revelation. And he's going to talk about supernatural revelation in a little bit. But no one has an excuse because simply being in creation, if you're a thinking person, you should be able to discern from the world around you and its order, its beauty, that there is something else at play here. There's a greater mind at play than your own. Here's how the catechism puts it. In paragraph number 31, it says, Created in God's image and called to know and love him, the person who seeks God discovers certain ways of coming to know him. These are also called proofs for the existence of God, not in the sense of proofs in the natural sciences, but rather in the sense of converging and convincing arguments. I love that phrase, converging and convincing arguments. They all kind of intertwine together to make an unassailable argument. The Catechism goes on to say these converging and convincing arguments allow us to attain certainty about the truth. These quote-unquote ways of approaching God from creation have a twofold point of departure, the physical world and the human person. And so this is really important, and Scripture itself testifies to this. You don't even have to have Scripture. Scripture tells us that we don't need Scripture to see that there is an eternal God. Here's what Psalm 19 says. It's one of my favorite Psalms. The heavens are telling the glory of God and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night declares knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Yet their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Then he starts talking about the movement of the sun the stars, the heavenly bodies, creation itself is telling of not only the glory of God, but the reality that there is a God. So even if you're a pagan, Paul says, hey, you do not have an excuse for all the things that I'm going to accuse you, but we'll find out what those things are on the next episode of our Letter to the Roman Study on the Faith Explained. I'm your host, Cale Clark. Hey, but don't go away. We've got our question and answer segment coming up right now. Okay, as we open up our Faith Explained Q&A mailbag, I want to remind you that you can email me your question. The address is faith at relevantradio.com. Easy to remember, F-A-I-T-H, faith at relevantradio.com. And you can also find me on the Twitter slash X app at Kale Clark, C-A-L-E, Clark with an E. 
So a couple of people actually emailed me the same question. Uh, Chandler uh, emailed me this question. Um, and uh, he, he basically says the same thing as another emailer uh, named Tim from Chicago, uh, who said this to me. Uh, Hi, Kale. In my Bible study group, there was an issue raised about whether or not Jesus was really a direct descendant of King David. We know from the Bible that Joseph is believed to be, but apparently is silent as to Mary. Jesus can't be a direct descendant of Joseph because Jesus was immaculately conceived. Do we believe... Now, uh, by the way, I think what he's doing there is uh, Tim is probably conflating the immaculate conception of Mary with the virginal conception of Jesus, the two different things, but, but nonetheless, uh, I know where you're, I smell what you're stepping in, Tim. I understand what you're saying here. Do we believe Jesus, he says, was a direct descendant because his stepdad was a direct descendant of David? I read an article online, I don't know the trustworthiness of the source, that suggested that Mary and Joseph were cousins, and if so, they, both Mary and Joseph, would be direct descendants of King David. Obviously, it's an important question because the Messiah, according to the Old Testament, was to come from the house of David. Please clarify this issue as to the church's teachings. Thanks, Tim in Chicago. Tim and Chandler as well. Um, thank you very much, my friends, for writing in. I really do appreciate that. And uh, yeah, here's the deal. E even though Joseph is the foster father of Jesus, he's obviously not Jesus' father. His father is God. He has no human father. He's still his legal father. And that does count in terms of genealogy, descendants. Even if Mary has no lineage in the house of David herself, that does not mean that Jesus cannot be considered legally a son of David. That's important for us to understand. But there's even more to it than this. Son of David isn't just this idea that the Messiah will be a direct descendant in the line of David, but also... It just is a messianic title in general. And we see this um, all throughout scripture because a lot of people, when they are healed by Jesus and when they ask Jesus for help, they refer to Jesus by this title. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 22, for example, there's a woman, her daughter's being tormented by a demon, a Canaanite woman, and she cries out, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. The two blind men. Now, of course, <laughs> Matthew has two of everything. And, and there's the two blind men in Matthew chapter 20. It says, And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. So this is specifically a messianic term, son of David. And, and the Pharisees and, and others who were you know, kind of hanging around on the fringes of the Jesus movement, they, they got it. They, they knew what people were trying to say here, that, that he is the Messiah. Not that they necessarily all believed it, although many of the Pharisees would have been right online with Jesus in terms of stuff that they believed about the afterlife, angels, demons, final judgment. The Sadducees didn't believe in any of that stuff. But this idea of the son of David being the Messiah and Jesus possibly being that Messiah is the subject of a lot of the arguments that Jesus has with them in Jerusalem shortly before uh, he is to go to the cross. A great place where you can find this is in Mark chapter 12. In fact, uh, Jesus is debating with the scribes and Pharisees, 
And one of the things that, that Jesus asks them, he used, he, Jesus used the Socratic method. You know, he asked questions, and that's how he taught. It says here, as Jesus taught in the temple, this is Mark chapter 12, verses 35 and following. As Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit, and by the way, Christ is, is just, just means Messiah, the anointed one. How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Okay, so there's a big crowd there, and they just they were just lapping it up. They loved it. So Jesus is saying, listen, if you, if you read what David said in Psalm 110, verse 1, and that's the, the quote that Jesus is referencing here, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Uh, obviously, Jesus here is saying that the Messiah is more than just a physical descendant of David. He's greater than David. In fact, he says that the Messiah is David's Lord. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So the Lord God says to the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So what, what's the point here? The Messiah, he's really laying the groundwork for people to understand that the Messiah is God incarnate himself. We see this even more clearly in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, Jesus is really the one speaking here. Jesus says, I am the root and the offspring of David. So that means that he's David's God. He's the originator of David and, and all people who have ever lived, all things. He's, he's the Almighty, the Pantocrator, the Creator. Jesus says, I am the root, I am the beginning of all things, and I'm also the offspring of David according to the flesh. He's the descendant of David. But, the, but really, the point of your question here is that. Is the Messiah son of David? Is he? Can he really be a true descendant of David if Joseph's only his legal father? The answer is yes. In the Jewish mind, the answer is absolutely yes. Your adoptive father is considered your real father legally. But even beyond that, Jesus is God. And so uh, it, it just takes this whole idea to a whole new level. So hopefully that helps to answer your question. Appreciate that from Chandler and also Tim in Chicago. Not sure where Chandler's writing from, but you can write to me wherever you may be, uh, listening all around the world on the Relevant Radio app or on one of our 200 stations all across the USA. Uh, please spread the good word, by the way, about the Faith Explained show and all of our other programs right here on Relevant Radio. And you can send me your question via email. The address is faith at relevantradio.com, faith at relevantradio.com, or you can find me on the X app at Kale Clark. I'll see you later today, 5 p.m. Central for the Kale Clark Show, live right here on Relevant Radio. And tomorrow for the next episode of The Faith Explained. Find an episode that you've missed, if you have missed any of them, on the podcasts on the Relevant Radio app and share them with a friend. Take care and peace.